Reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will God not give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray. Father, as we turn our hearts to your word, we pray that you would open our ears and our minds, that, Lord, you would speak to us through these ancient words, and that, Lord, having heard your word, we would go out determined in the power of your Holy Spirit to live for your glory and honor and praise through Christ our Lord. Amen. Lord's Day 10 in the Heidelberg Catechism summarizes Scripture by teaching us Lord's Day 10 summarizes Scripture. I don't know if there's any difference there, but it's, it's on and the battery says it's good. So, try that. Anyway, the Catechism gives us a summary of some of the things that are said in Scripture about God's providence in question and answer 27, stating that providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty— all things, in fact, come to us, not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. I'll give you a second or two to get your head around that idea, because the all things in question and answer 27 is a Pauline all things. So not some things, not most things, not just the good things, all things, everything that comes our way in this life, in fact, comes not by chance, but from God's fatherly hand. It's not always easy for us to see that or comprehend it, but it is what God's Word teaches. And working through the Catechism, by the time we get to Lord's Day 10, if we've been paying attention, then we already know this, 
Because Lord's Day 1 taught us that because we belong to God, body and soul, in life and in death, then not a hair can fall from our head without the will of our Father in heaven. In fact, all things, there it is again, all things must work together for our salvation. Leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty. Or if you prefer scripture, Romans 8, verse 31 through 39, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now Paul does not say that those things will not come to us, that we will not encounter persecution or tribulation or distress or famine or danger or sword. But he is saying that in all these things, as they come to us, in the ordinary course of our lives, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, says the apostle, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Even so, if we love God, and if we are called according to his purpose, then all things, in fact, must work together for our salvation. This is just foundational to our understanding of Scripture. And that's why it's in Lord's Day 1. They had to get that right in at the beginning of the catechism. Without necessarily endorsing all of his work, there is a popular Christian songwriter who once said, God is God, and I am not. We are not. And that pretty much sums it up. And that being the case, God is God. He is the sovereign Lord over all creation. He is the sovereign Lord over our lives, and we are not it's inevitable then that the question that frames the sermon this morning is going to be asked. If God is God and we are not, if all things, the good, the bad, and the ugly, must work together for the salvation of God's elect, if, as it says in Daniel chapter 4, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and God does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? If all of those things are true, and they are, then why do Christians need to pray? 
Now, one quick point of interest here, the quote above, he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth comes from the book of Daniel. It comes from a book whose author was particularly known as a man of prayer. A few of those prayers are recorded for us in the book that bears his name. And what child has not been taught the story about that occasion when the king had been tricked into signing a law that prohibited prayer and petition to any god or man other than himself. And when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, when he knew that that document was the law of the land, and it was temporary, only 30 days, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had his windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. So Daniel, fully understanding that God does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, did not say, well, you know, 30 days, that's not so bad. I'll just let it go for 30 days. He went home, he opened his window, he got down on his knees and he prayed. He prayed both regularly and he prayed often. And that really ought to be enough. Why do Christians need to pray? Because the practice of God's people from the earliest chapters of Genesis to the very end of the book of the Revelation demonstrate to us that prayer, communion with God, has always been the practice of God's people. Still, someone might suggest that maybe those people didn't know about or didn't believe in the sovereignty of God. Because if they did... Why did they still feel the need to pray? Well, listen to the Catechism, the very same document that told us that everything that comes our way in life comes not by chance, but from God's fatherly hand. Listen to its response to the question, why do Christians need to pray? Because prayer is the most important part of the thankfulness God requires of us, and also because God gives his grace and Holy Spirit only to those who pray continually and groan inwardly, asking God for these gifts and thanking him for them. So three points here this morning. First of all, Christians need to pray because prayer is worship. Prayer is the most important part of the thankfulness that God requires of us. So I want you to just think. Most of you have probably read through all of the Psalms and significant portions of Scripture. Think of all of those instances in Scripture where we are urged, and that's a weak word, commanded would be a more appropriate word. Think of all of those instances in Scripture where God commands us to give thanks. Here's a handful. Psalm 30, verse 4. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. Psalm 97, verse 2. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. Psalm 105, verse 1, O give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name. 
make known his deeds among the peoples. Psalm 118, verse 1, and it's exactly word for word the same as verse 29, as well as Psalm 136, verses 1, 2, 3, and 26. They all say exactly the same thing. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Just a little aside, if you find yourself at a time in life when you can't think of any reason to be thankful, things are just not going your way, they're going exactly the opposite of your way, life is not good, well, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. And his steadfast love endures forever. And all of that is to say nothing of the benediction you've heard so often from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And believe me, if I could go into overtime this morning, and I'm hoping not to, I could just go on citing references like this over and over and over again for the rest of the hour. God calls us to pray. God calls us to worship. God calls us to thankfulness over and over again. And every single one of those exhortations to thankfulness is a call to prayer because prayer is the most important part of the thankfulness that God requires of us. And it's the most important part because it's the primary means by which we express praise and thanksgiving to God. This Lord's Day in the Heidelberg comes after we've been taught that the Ten Commandments are a way for us to live so as to show our gratitude to God for his steadfast love and the great salvation that he has given to us. But then, right after doing that, the author dives into the Lord's Prayer and he says, but this, this thing, praying, this is the most important part of the thankfulness that God requires. That's not to say that God doesn't require us to live for his glory. It's not saying that God doesn't expect his people by his grace and in the power of his Holy Spirit to walk according to his commands. It's just saying that all of that is sort of drawn together. It's kind of like we were talking about, I think it was last week, where Paul says, if I speak with the tongue of men and angels and have not love, I am become a sounding brass or tinkling cymbal, if I give away everything I own to the poor, if I give my body to be burned and have not love, I have nothing and I gain nothing. Well, Paul's not saying that those things are not good, all you need is love. He's saying that those things are meaningless unless they are accompanied by love. And in the same way, the author of the catechism here lays out the Ten Commandments as a rule of gratitude. And then he says, and all of those things must be combined with prayer. All of those things must be done in a relationship with God where we are continually drawn to speak to the one who loved us so much that he gave his son for our sin. And we are continually drawn to listen to what he is saying. 
Prayer is the primary means by which we express praise and thanksgiving to God. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Rejoice always. How do you do that? Well, pray without ceasing and give thanks in all circumstances. Those are not three separate things. Taken together, those three things are the will, singular, of God in Christ Jesus for you. And that brings us to our second point. Unceasing, persistent prayer is God's will. Period. I said earlier that Daniel's example ought to be enough to answer the question of why Christians need to pray. If it wasn't, then this is. Prayer is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Pray without ceasing, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. It's really that simple. I know I've talked about this before, but over the last 25 years or so, I have had more than a few people come to me concerned about finding God's will for their lives. I used to have that question myself. And when we're young, very often it revolves around vocation. We're trying to figure out what are we going to do with ourselves as we move on into adulthood. Should, should I be a doctor or a pastor or a bricklayer? Sometimes when our heartstrings have been plucked just right, we begin to wonder about that person that we're attracted to. Is this God's will? Is this the person that God wants me to spend the rest of my life with? Most of us here today have already resolved those questions, but there are some who have not. And they are, of course, legitimate questions. And they're questions that need to be answered, but they don't need to be answered by a lightning bolt from the sky indicating to us which person God wants us to spend the rest of our lives with. That would be really awkward, especially for that person to be pointed out by a lightning bolt. God doesn't reveal his will in that way, but here it is in black and white. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. What is God's will for your life? It's right there over my shoulder on the screen. That is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Jesus. Now we learned something about this when we were studying the book of James earlier in the fall. It should be axiomatic that if we really want to know God's will in one area of our life, I'm wondering if I should do this or not. I wonder what God's will for me is. Well, if I want to know God's will in that area of my life, then I should be committed to doing God's will in those areas of my life where I do know what it is. James spoke of this very thing. He said, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Well, that's good. If you lack wisdom, if you don't know what God wants you to do, ask him. If you don't know God's will, ask the God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given you. That's true. But we saw, James went on to say, let him ask in faith with no doubting. 
Now that is not, first of all, James is not talking about asking God for, you know, a new car or a Gulf Stream or something along those lines. And when he says, let him ask in faith with no doubting, he is not saying, if you just believe hard enough, God will give you everything that you ask for. He's talking about asking for wisdom. And when he talks about asking in faith, he's saying, let him ask with the kind of faith that is committed to living in the wisdom of God. Let him ask with the kind of faith that will obey what the Lord tells him to do. There are examples of this in the Old Testament where people came to inquire of the Lord and they said, what does God want us to do? And God spoke and he said, well, this is what I want you to do. And then they said, ah, yeah, <laughs> I was hoping for a little different answer. No, thanks, God. I'm going to go do that instead. And that's what James is talking about. For the one who doubts, the one who's not sure if he will obey God's will or not is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. In other words, don't ask the Lord to tell you what to do in any given circumstance if you are not willing to do what he tells you to do in every given circumstance. Let me say that again. Don't ask God to tell you what to do in a particular circumstance if you're not willing to do what he tells you to do in every given circumstance. And it's probably best to start with what you do know. And here it is. Start with this. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. We need to pray because prayer is worship. And we need to pray because prayer is God's will. But to quote a famous television detective from my era, just one more thing. Prayer works. We saw this in our text this morning from the Gospel of Luke. You all thought I forgot about Luke, didn't you? But I didn't. We saw this in our text in the Gospel of Luke. Consider Luke 18, verse 1, and he, that would be Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And Peter read that parable for us a little earlier. Now, in substance, it is not one of the easiest parables to interpret. It involves a judge who neither feared God nor respected man, and it involved a widow who just kept on bothering him, asking him for justice against her adversary. It's always been hard to figure out how that judge relates to the living God, but in evangelicalism today, it's just as hard to imagine how the vindictive widow relates to us. It's not the hardest or the easiest parable. Having said that, it, it kind of is one of the easier parables to interpret because Luke very conveniently tells us the point before he tells us the story. Whenever Jesus told a parable, he was communicating a particular point, and often just one point. One of the mistakes we make 
in looking at the parables is looking for 57 different ways in which all of the different characters and things that happen are some kind of an analogy. And more often than not, Jesus is just saying, I have one point to make to you, and I'm going to make it by telling a story because the story is going to make the truth stick. And the truth that he was communicating in this particular story is all contained in verse 1. My slide is not there, so listen. He told them a parable to the effect. It was to this purpose. This was the reason why he told them this parable, to the effect that they are always to pray, always. Pray without ceasing, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you, and not lose heart. He told them a parable so that they would learn to pray without ceasing, and so that they would learn to pray without ever giving up. Why? For while the unrighteous judge refused the widow's petition, Afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, saying, listen to how even an unrighteous judge could have his will bent by someone who just kept on coming and coming and praying and asking. Now that's the word of an unrighteous judge. And if a persistent petition could wear down even him, Jesus goes on to say, will not God, who is the one truly righteous judge of all the universe, will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? In effect, Jesus is saying, if an unrighteous judge could be moved by persistent petition, how should we approach a righteous judge who has already promised justice for those he has chosen? Now, in this particular parable in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is looking at a very particular circumstance we talked about a lot when we were studying through the book of Revelation. But the thinking here is parallel. It's parallel to Luke 11, verse 13, where Jesus said, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And Matthew records this as if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father who uh, the Father is in heaven, give good gifts to those who ask him. The Heidelberg Catechism just pulls those both together. It said God gives his grace, his good things, and his Holy Spirit only. There's another whole sermon in that word alone. Only to those who pray continually and groan inwardly, asking God for these gifts and thanking him for them. So there are people who will ask for those gifts, and they will receive them from the Lord. There are people who don't ask for them, and God will not give those gifts to them. 
James said, you do not have because you do not ask. It's kind of a simple thing, really. He also said, or because you ask with wrong motives. You're asking for the stuff of this world so that you can spend what you get on your pleasures. But God knows what is good, and every good and perfect gift comes from him. And when we ask, we receive. Someone has said, God gives us what we would have asked for if we knew everything that he knows. And I think that's probably true. God knows what is good. God knows what we truly need. And God gives these things to those who pray continually and groan inwardly, asking God for these gifts and thanking him for them. So we need to pray because prayer is worship. We need to pray because prayer is God's will for us in Christ Jesus. We need to pray without ceasing because that is God's will for us in Christ Jesus. And we need to pray because prayer works. Prayer makes a difference in our lives. God gives his grace and Holy Spirit to those who pray continually and groan inwardly, asking God for these gifts and thanking him for them. This is the answer to our question this morning. Why do Christians need to pray? And I'll ask you to join me in the answer given by the Heidelberg Catechism. Because prayer is the most important part of the thankfulness God requires of us, and also because God gives his grace and Holy Spirit only to those who pray continually and groan inwardly, asking God for these gifts and thanking him for them. Prayer is worship. Prayer is God's will. Prayer works. There's much more that could be said, and next week we're going to come back to this same subject. But for now, the conclusion, I think, should be evident to all. Christians need to pray. Whether or not we fully understand why, whether or not we fully understand how the sovereignty of God interacts with our prayers and petitions brought before him, it really doesn't matter. We just need to pray. So rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, as his disciples came to Jesus and asked, teach us to pray, we come asking the same thing. Teach us to pray not just in the words that we ought to speak, not just in the attitudes that we ought to bring when we approach you, not just in the rhythms of prayer, but teach us to pray. Teach us that when we feel alone, we can speak your name and talk to you and know that you are there. Teach us to pray. Teach us, Lord, that when we feel discouraged, when despair threatens to overwhelm us, we can look to you and ask for the joy of your salvation. Teach us 
that when we need your wisdom, you stand ready to give it to anyone who stands ready to be obedient and faithful to the word that you speak. And teach us, Father, that whatever our need may be, that you truly know what is best, what is best for us, what will bring glory to our Savior Jesus Christ, and what will build that kingdom that he is bringing into this world. And Lord, help us to ask in faith, believing that you will do what is best, believing that every good and perfect gift comes from you, the Father of light, in whom there is no variation or shadow of change, that we may receive whatever comes our way through your hand of providence in this life, that we may be grateful, that we may rejoice, that we may give thanks, and that we may sing the praises of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.